Hi, and thanks for clicking. You're listening to Ancient Bloggers Podcast. You can find links to my YouTube channel, articles, Facebook page, and such on my website, ancientblogger.com. Obviously, I'm on Twitter as well, at Ancient Blogger, so come and say hi. As promised in my last podcast, this one is a Halloween special, and to that end, we'll be looking at stories involving werewolves, vampires, hauntings, sort of zombies, and other spooky stuff, all from ancient Greece and Rome. Welcome to Night of the Livy Dead. I say we as I have my first guest, who's looked over the stories and will be giving her ideas and input. A great opportunity to get someone who's not in the ancient history bubble, doesn't have a background in ancient history, but is a big horror fan. And it also means you hear less of me. So everyone's a winner. Welcome aboard, Emma. Hi. As, as Angel Blogger has already said, I'm Emma, and I've been a horror fan since I was young. It's my favourite genre, and there's nothing I enjoy more than a good scare. I'm also a scientist and educator, and I'm really excited to be part of this podcast and learn more about ancient spooky myths, as well as pointing out some similarities and links to modern-day horror stories. As has already been said, I've got no real background in ancient history, so I'm coming at this very much as a layperson. If you want to hear more from me, then you can find me on Instagram. I haven't got any other social media feeds um, at Fire After Dawn, where I post fitness, science and what I'm up to content. It's a bit of a mishmash of stuff, but hopefully it's interesting to some people. Our first story involves a werewolf and it comes from Petronius's Tyricon, which was written in the first century or the middle of the first century AD. The story is told at Trimalchio's dinner, which is very famous for various reasons, and it involves a freedman called Niceros. He had fallen in love with someone called Melissa and wanted to go and visit her. And he takes with him a soldier friend for the journey. I won't say much more than that. Before I want to get started, I just thought I'd ask you, Emma, what your opinion was or what your thoughts were on the werewolf myth or werewolf genre, as it were. I I like werewolf films, but I would say they're not my favourite. Out of all the ones we're covering, all the areas we're covering, the genres we're covering today... I would say that werewolves were my least favourite. And I was thinking about why that might be. And I think it might be just because I quite like dogs and I don't (laughs) find dogs particularly scary. Although obviously if there was a wolf in this room, I'd be terrified, but you can also just shut the door. Um, So that, that is something that I like to be scared when I'm watching a horror film. And if I can find a way out, I put myself in the position of the, the protagonist. If I can find my way out of something, then it's not as scary and with werewolves, I think you can find your way out with them quite quite easily. So possibly that's what it is. That's not to say I don't like werewolf films. I've seen a couple, which I will mention in a bit, that I, that I do really enjoy. But it's not my favourite genre. No, it's fair enough. Everyone's got their own preferences and they, you can rate, you can't love everything. It's a very good point you make, though, about being afraid of a wolf for practical reasons. You can shut a door on a wolf. And this is something I'll come to how cinema treats the myth of the werewolf and how different people have different receptions to being scared to what effectively is a dog and what cinema then creates. And that's something I'll come to after this, so I will pick that up. But that's a very good point you make. Anyway, I'm going to get on now with the story. The moon shone like high noon and we we got among the tombstones. My man went aside to look at the epitaphs I sat down with my heart full of song and began to count the graves. Then when I looked round at my friend, he stripped himself and put all his clothes by the roadside. My heart was in my mouth, but I stood like a dead man. He made a ring of water around his clothes and suddenly turned into a wolf. Please do not think I'm joking. I would not lie about this for any fortune in the world. But as I was saying, after he had turned into a wolf, he began to howl and he ran off into the woods. 
At first I hardly knew where he was. Then I went up to take his clothes, but they had turned it into stone. No one could be nearer dread with terror than I was, but I drew my sword and went slaying shadows all the way until I came to my love's house. I went in like a corpse and nearly gave up the ghost. The sweat ran down my legs and my eyes were dull. I could hardly be revived. My dear Melissa was surprised at my being out so late and said, If you'd come earlier, you might have at least had helped us. A wolf got into the house and worried all our sheep and let their blood like a butcher. But he did not make fools of us, even though he got off, for our slave made a hole in his neck with a spear. When I heard this, I couldn't keep my eyes shut any longer, but at break of day I rushed back to my master, Gaius's house, like a defrauded publican. And when I came to the place where the clothes were turned to stone, I found nothing but a pool of blood. But when I reached home, my soldier was lying in bed like an ox, with a doctor looking at his neck. I realised that he was a werewolf. Well, that was delivered my best, I didn't do drama at school voice. And uh, I suppose I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to say, well, what did you think? I think that Melissa is definitely someone he wanted to get with, but who probably wasn't interested. It sounds very friend zone to me. <laughs> <laughs> Not that, of course, I believe the friend zone exists. But anyway, the links that I saw when I first read this story to modern werewolf films were the mention of the moon. Obviously, the full moon, the transformation yeah. of the full moon is a, one of those tropes that just keeps on coming. And also, death of sheep immediately made me think of the slaughtered lamb. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. American yeah, Werewolf yeah. in London, which is probably the most classic werewolf film to, yeah. to date, really. But after that, I couldn't really... It didn't really feel that much like a werewolf story to me, despite a man turning into a wolf. You, yeah. you would expect that to be werewolfy. It lacked that area that modern horror has with regards to werewolves changing or people changing into werewolves is usually linked with puberty or some kind of change, some kind of ritual. For example, the film Teen Wolf, which isn't a horror, but we'll pop it in there anyway because it's a good example. And also, more recently, the film Ginger Snaps, which is all around a woman coming of age, going through puberty, then being bitten by a wolf, then becoming a wolf herself. Spoiler alert, it was quite an old film, so I apologise if I've just completely spoiled that for you. But I found that quite interesting. I also found the fact that werewolf films are often linked to desire, or they're a, a touch more sexual than this. Now I appreciate that there's probably a whole reason behind why it's not particularly sexual, because I imagine that back in those days they, their writing about horror stuff wasn't necessarily linked to sex, but in a lot of our horror genres, as we'll see as we go along, there are a lot of sexual links, and so there, there wasn't really anything sexual in there other than some dude taking his clothes off there was a man standing in a pool of water <laughs> naked in a graveyard that's that's just everything you need surely on a first date <laughs> well um, whatever floats your boat really yeah well <laughs> okay well that those are really really good points um there's a couple things you mentioned the moon yes now in this instance the moon is simply there so everything can be seen. Ah, it wasn't sense. the trigger. We see the moon in the werewolf genre as that trigger, as that it's going to happen now, this is to what, what to look out for. I did a bit of sort of research, I suppose you'd call it, and it's not something that really happens until much more recent. Okay. I, I'm not sure if it's purely what I would call, I'm not going to call it Hollywood, but a cinematic invention, because if you think about it, having something that is such a forbearance of what's to come it is the it is that uh, it's it's that thing that trope that they always have with 
a bomb always has a timer on it. Right, yeah. But the reality is a bomb wouldn't have a timer on it because you're just telling everyone how long <laughs> you've got to defuse it. Uh, there's one of those, there's a website that does all these things that make, they say you take it for granted in a film, reality, it makes no sense. And if you're doing this cinematically or in any kind of visual medium, having the the moon is that it, it creates tension. Yeah. Because you, you've got the person and, oh no, they're going to change. He's seen the moon or she's seen the moon. You know what's going to come next. It, it creates that tension. And it's not necessarily there in, in this. It, it's really just, I suppose, a pragmatic aspect. It allows everything to be seen. I just wanted to add something. You saying that has just made me realise that one of the reasons I don't like a werewolf film or I'm not a big fan of werewolf films is that idea that just don't go out on the full moon or just lock the person away in the full moon and you've sorted your problem. There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing scary about a problem that you can you're, sort. You're going to go down the Jaws route of just, just go on the beach. Well, you know how I think about Jaws. I'm not a, um, we're not going to go into Jaws, but I just think, yeah, just don't go in the water. There your problem's solved. And the same with the werewolf. There's a full moon. Just lock yourself up. Well, I'm going to come, what I'm going to come to, so I've made a, a, a few points here and some of them were in anticipation of what you were going to say and some of them as a result of, of what, you've just, what you've just said. Yep. The first is actually just about other myths. I did mention there are other accounts of kind of lycanthropy, werewolves. Uh, we've got one from Pausanias right in the 2nd century AD. And he said, he, he references something that Pliny in natural history also references. And there is, is this cult where worshippers are somehow transformed into a wolf. Pausanias mentions it. Um, like he says, Lycanian Zeus, it's an Arcadia, I think. And one of the worshippers will get transformed into a wolf. Pliny's is where there's almost a... Uh, someone volunteers to do it. Both of them, though, have this ritual aspect to them. Because after transforming, you are then a wolf for, I think it's nine years. Okay. And then you, you are not allowed to eat human flesh. If you don't eat human flesh for nine years, when you come back, then you can change back. The change is made in, in Pliny's, you swim through a lake. Now, in Petronius, he said that he had a, a water, circle of water around him. In other accounts, it's urine, which gives you another. But this idea of water Nothing. being a sort of transformative aspect to the werewolf change, the moon isn't mentioned... And where I think that this comes from, or my uh, sort of hypothesis, is finding a ritual where this, where this, you, you can kind of find that what I would term the grit and the oyster that becomes the, the pearl, that becomes the myth. So if you've got a, an initiation, right, where you've got young, young guys, and part of their initiation is to go out and hunt. And you might, they might be termed the wolves, they might be given wolf skins, something like that. They're sent out to hunt for an allotted time, and then they're welcomed back into the community. The not eat human flesh thing could be they're not allowed to interact with humans, that they're out on their own. We know that the Spartans had something akin to that with their ritual, with the, with the cryptaea, which were the elite Spartan youths they went through. They also had some really bizarre, there's a Spartan festival uh, initiation rite where you had to steal cheese from a platform. And, Sounds uh, you, like my kind of right. Yeah, well, it gets nasty because then there were guys armed with whips <laughs> on the platform, 
and you were trying to get the cheese and boys would die there were accounts of, of, of boys dying and it was how how hard you got beaten it's just it's just there's I mean Freud I don't know even where it begin no I'm sorry I'm not, I'm not laughing at people being beaten I just don't know a lot of people who really like cheese and I wonder how far they'd go well it's it'll be a, I'm going to pitch it <laughs> it will be a celebrity show. trust me it'll be there sounds like a terrible it, reality it, it will, therefore it'll work but anyway getting back to getting back to the werewolf a bit we've mentioned the moon the moon I think is very much a cinematic device that comes in we've also mentioned that you mentioned uh, Team Wolf. Yes, yes, I did. And Team Wolf is uh, half man, half wolf, or half boy, half teenager, half wolf. And that you've got that again, this transformation in in the, the myths that we're looking at in Pausanias, Pliny, and Petronius's account. It's full transformation. There isn't a half transformation no. there. You transform fully. In the terms of cinema, if you're trying to make an audience scared, dogs don't always work. No, I did. A apart, bit of, apart from Cujo, well, yeah, King's okay, famous, famous, you've, you've, famous you've, scary dog film. You've got, yeah, you've <laughs> got Cujo. There's a, a guy called he's Adam Douglas, and he wrote a book called The Beast Within, which is a fantastic book. And I got it for my 17th birthday, so he is incredibly old. That's so old. That's yeah, it was yeah. <laughs> Didn't even know they had paper then. No, they, all the first letter on each page was huge uh, and coloured in. But yeah, and he he was he talks he does an excellent section in it, and it's all about cinema and Hollywood and the werewolf and he's mentioned that there were films that were made early on I think there was one in 1913 a Canadian film about the werewolf and they used a timber wolf and everyone just loved the timber wolf <laughs> because people like wolves they like dogs and Company of Wolves is a more recent film and that's got I wouldn't call it a fantasy element to it but it doesn't have that sharp scariness of say I don't know the howling if you think about the reasons why you might want to have half man half wolf First of all, we're dealing with this in the, in the context of cinema. You have far more options. Because again, if I'm being chased by a wolf, I shut a door. Yeah, like I said earlier. Um, you just shut game over. Yeah. If you're half, half man, half wolf, you can you know, put your hand through the door and open it. You can do all those kind of things. You can jump, you can climb. It's also scarier. It's far scarier. And perhaps the Greeks and the Romans didn't need that extra scare because wolves were a genuine threat. Yeah, that's true. Whereas we don't see them as a genuine threat. So we have this half man, half wolf. It gives you many more options. And I think generally it's just a, a scarier thing. So we've got the, the moon doesn't seem to be present. That seems to be a more modern thing. We've also got silver, not mentioned there at all. Oh yeah, that's true. But it, I think it's Lon Chanley Jr.'s film, The Wolf Man, where we see silver for the first time being used. And it's because, uh, spoiler alert, it's a 60, 70 year old film. So you probably guess what's going to happen to the werewolf. His death is caused by a silver, a silver top walking stick or walking cane. Okay. Because a lot of the walking canes and walking sticks at the time of that sort of, I suppose, dem uh, demographic, the rich gentleman, would have been silver. It's a, it's, a, it's a wolf's head, but it's got a pentagram on it. The silver bullet then came later. You have the pentagram. All of these things seem to have occurred in, the, in sort of 20th century cinema. The other thing is the werewolf doesn't have the the text the book whereas you have Dracula which is as we'll see some but not all vampires uh, you have Frankenstein you have the werewolf doesn't have that one book where it kind of gives you all the rules right and I think the cinema took that run with it I've only got one final point to make on this in Petronius account we have I suppose it is the earliest record of what is termed sympathetic wound the, the werewolf incurs an injury 
and you can identify who the werewolf is from it because when they change back the person has that injury as well in some of the werewolf films there has almost that detective element who is the werewolf or how do they find out so and so is the werewolf yeah. and this is this is a really early account of that but I can't think of anything else I really want to go over we've looked at the the werewolf in the Greek and Roman context we've looked at a couple of the myths surrounding it tried to contrast that and found various matches and mismatches in the sort of more modern renditions of it is there anything final you want to say on it at all? I'm a bit annoyed that I didn't think about the sympathetic wound to be honest with you because <laughs> having having looked at it it's really really obvious but I it does remind me this is going to show my age now of I really liked Sweet Valley High books when I was a kid and they did a whole series of a werewolf in London I don't know if they're just trying to rip off American werewolf in London but they the, the Sweet Valley High is about two blonde twins from California I'm not going to bore you with it but they come to London and they start werewolf hunting. It's a bit Sherlock Holmes-esque. I don't know why they went on this weird tangent in the late 90s with these American teenage books, but it was brilliant. The way they worked out who it was was a sympathetic wound. Yeah, it's, it's, a, brilliant, it's a brilliant opportunity. I mean, it, again, narrative, you're trying to tell a story. If you want to bring in that who is it, who done it, yeah, then it's, it's, a great, it's a great option. And Petronius was there. And I think perhaps that hooked in. What we... What we're going to look at next, though, is another staple of, I suppose, the horror genre, the vampire. I'm very excited about the vampire. As promised, we're now going to look at the vampire. We've got two stories to look at. One from Philostratus, another one from Phlegon. I'm going to give the Philostratus one a whirl and see how that sounds. It involves uh, its life of Apollonius, and it deals with... Apollonius and Menippus. And Menippus is a chap, a young guy, who's fallen in love with a, well, I suppose you'd call it exotic and foreign lady. <laughs> well, you probably guess where this is going. Now, this Menippus was supposed by most people to be loved by a foreign woman who was good-looking and extremely dainty, and said that she was rich, although she was really, as it turned out, none of these things, but was only so in semblance. For as he was walking all alone along the road towards Corinth he met with an apparition and it was a woman who clasped his hand and declared that she had been in love with him and she was a Phoenician woman who lived in a suburb of Corinth and she mentioned the name of the particular suburb and said when you reach the place this evening you will hear my voice as I sing to you and you shall have wine as you have never before drank and there will be no rival to disturb you as we two beautiful beings will live together. The youth consented to this, for although he was in general a strenuous philosopher, he was nevertheless susceptible to the tender passion, and he visited her in the evening, and for the future constantly sought her company as his darling, for he did not yet realise that she was a mere apparition. Then Apollonius looked over Menippus as a sculptor might do, and he sketched an outline of the youth and examined him, and having observed his foibles, he said, You are a fine youth and are hunted by fine women, but in this case you are cherishing a serpent and a serpent cherishes you. And when Menippus expected this as his prize, he added, For this lady is of a kind you cannot marry. Why should you? Do you think that she loves you? Indeed I do, said the youth, since she behaves to me as if she loves me. And would you then marry her, said Apollonius? Well, why, yes, for it would be delightful to marry a woman who loves you. Thereupon Apollonius asked when the wedding was to be. Perhaps tomorrow, said the other, for it brooks no delay. Apollonius therefore waited for the occasion of the wedding breakfast, and then, presenting himself before the guests he had just arrived, he said, 
where is the dainty lady? Here she is, replied Menippus, and at the same moment he rose slowly from his seat, blushing. And to which of you belong the silver and gold and all the rest of the decorations of the banqueting hall? To the lady, replied the youth, for this is all I have of my own, pointing to the philosopher's cloak which he wore. And Apollonius said, Have you heard of the gardens of Tantalus, how they exist and yet do not exist? Yes, they answered, in the poems of Homer, for we certainly never went down to Hades. As such, replied Apollonius, you must regard this adornment, for it is not reality, but the semblance of reality. And that you may realise the truth why I say, this is a fine bride, is a vampire. That is to say, one of those beings whom many regard as Lemias. These beings fall in love, and they are devoted to the lights of Aphrodite, but especially to the flesh of human beings, and they decoy with such delights those whom they mean to devour in their feasts. And the lady said, Cease your ill-omened talk and be gone. And she pretended to be disgusted at what she heard, and in fact she was inclined to rail at the philosophers and say they always talk nonsense. When, however, the goblets of gold and the shower of silver were proved as light as air and all fluttered away out of their sight, while the wine-bearers and the cooks and all of the retinue of the servants vanished before the rebukes of Apollonius, the phantom pretended to weep and prayed for him not to torture her, nor to compel her to confess what she really was. But Apollonius insisted, and would not let her off, and then she admitted she was a vampire, and was fattening up Minippus with pleasures before devouring his body, for it was her habit to feed upon young and beautiful bodies, because their blood is pure and strong. Well, that was Philostratus' story, expertly read by my good self. I expect to be in a radio drama soon. <laughs> And I suppose I'm going to do the same thing as I did last time and ask you for what you thought of that. I thought it was interesting. Um, I liked it more than the werewolves, obviously, because it's vampires. And as I said earlier, vampires are my thing. I also found it really interesting initially when I was reading through this, because although Ancient Bloggers' dramatic reading is marvellous, I wanted <laughs> yeah. to have a read myself um, before we got together. I thought it was an interesting twist initially on the young female virgin trope in terms of how his vampire usually goes for. But then, as I wrote, even as I was writing that down, I realised that there are actually lots of female vampires in the modern horror genre. And as my brain started clicking through and I was thinking about Blade 3, there is a very strong female vampire who puts Ryan Reynolds' character in a cell for her pleasure, for her use, which is very similar to this um, lady fattening up Menippus. And then I thought about the Lost Boys and how there was Star and she was being used to gather young, vital men for blood. So I suppose a sort of recruiting agent. Yeah, she was more of a recruiting agent than being the the direct vampiric woman that this this lady was. And then From Dust Till Dawn suddenly came to my head as one of the most um, desired women in the 90s, in um, 1996, <laughs> ah. Salma Hayek's character. And her character was this incredible... I'm not going to go into the sexuality of vampires because that's not really here. Although she does talk about feeding upon young and beautiful bodies. But I, I think that was enough there to reference the sexuality of vampires. But she was so strong and just the, the, the female character of that was, was really interesting. And again... There was uh, Monica Bellucci's character in Dracula's Bride in Bram Stoker's Dracula, which was also in the 90s, who ate babies. Interesting idea. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's referenced here. Uh, when Philostratus, in the Philostratus account, 
talks, um, Apollonius talks about Lemire, and they were sort of vampire creatures, females who were responsible, or often associated with the death of death of children. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So there's there's a link there as well. But yeah, I just I suddenly just remembered all of these strong female vampiric characters that that do exist. So although initially I think when we we think about vampires in the modern genre, we think about them the Dracula, I will suck your blood, going after virgins. If you deep delve into that a little bit more, there are a lot of female vampires as well. I've probably missed out many. We, I think we've, I'm True Blood. Just thinking of True Blood. The uh, main vampires in True Blood are... Are, are they all male? Well, there's Pam, but the, uh, the, the, the yeah, main two yeah. are... Yeah, no, it's fair, fair point. But anything that makes me think about Alexander Skarsgård is always, is always well, a good Well, we, we ended up in a, in a happy place. It's <laughs> a very happy place. But yeah, so that's, that's what I got from that. I thought it felt very much like a vampire story, but not just because they said that she was a vampire, but the, the richness of it, because vampires are historically having... That exotic foreigner. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is obviously something that we associate with the, the most famous vampire story. Of course, Dracula, yes. Dracula, you have this exotic foreigner. I think there's a, there's, that is the, the idea of being foreign, being other, was a very important thing in certainly the Greek and Roman construct. You think of Medea in Greek myth, it's the idea of being foreign. And ironically, this Medea also happens in Corinth as well. She's referenced as being Phoenician. So she's quite foreign. She's not the girl next door by any standards, both in terms of how she acts and locality. Right. So you've got this idea of, I won't say corruption, should we say undue influences <laughs> from, from a sort of foreign unchecked body. Mm. And here you've got, he's referenced, Menippus is a philosopher. So you've got this kind of corruption on, on several levels. He's a good, upstanding, moral character who, who's very much defined as the man. He's very much a male character. He's, he thinks he's not a man of emotion. So he's got a lot of the tick boxes that, I suppose, ancient Greece and Rome would, would be placing on the, if you had a spectrum of attributes, in the man end of it. Up against this is the other, it's the foreign, it's the woman, it's sensual... It's all of these things which you, know, you, are, you mentioned about the physical aspect of it. Yeah. And I, I think there is that, obviously. But I think there's also the moral aspect to it. You know, he's gone from someone who just owns a cloak, but association with her means that he's cupbearers. He's got this he, wealth. He's yeah. got this wealth. So it's, sort of, it's operating on a number of levels. It's certainly, again, an interesting one. I think with, with the danger that we have is that we've got, in, a, in stark contrast to the werewolf, where with the werewolf you don't have that defin definitive text, as it were, that goes, this is a werewolf. We have that with, with vampires. We have the Dracula text, which does sort of inform and over, overarch most, or is easily referenced in, in many of the, the vampires. The, how, wherever a vampire film or book exists, at some point it's contrasted with Dracula. It's held up. It, it, yeah, it has some... It's nourished in some way. Well, like I said, it. as soon as I read this, my immediate thought was coming from the the Dracula trope. Mm. Or, not that it's a trope, the Dracula book of old, but don't vampires go for young women? Or this is a switch. And then suddenly, like I said, I remembered that that isn't, that isn't the case at all. So absolutely, there is this this history there that, that like you said, isn't available for the werewolf. Uh, well, yeah, it, it's also difficult because you have a number of uh, beings. I know I mentioned the Lamia who were uh, one particular type of, I say monster, but creature that operated in that way. We see other creatures, in particularly in ancient Greece, and if, if you've read Homer, you'll know in the Odyssey, how do you attract dead souls? 
use blood. So you've got the ghosts are appeased by blood. Mm. They drink blood in order to communicate. If we're giving that as our identikit, a vampire is, yeah. then you could apply that across a range of yeah, that's uh, sort of... You don't have that one specific, this is a vampire. When you come to translate texts, I, I don't, but I'm aware of the difficulty finding that right word and retrospectively putting it in there. We'll, we'll see later when I, I touch on this in a, a very different context. It's up to the translator in some ways to really find that word that fits, yeah. but it does have implications elsewhere, so you can land a very different conclusion to it. And when they were going back through here, the vampire, I'm, I'm pretty sure the vampire, as I understand it, isn't, isn't a Latin, I'm not sure, it's, I'm pretty sure it's not a Latin word. I'm pretty sure it's not an ancient Greek word. I think it's, it's far more recent than mm. that. So you don't have, again, you don't have this uh, direct connection. You have lots of creatures that could be defined in that way. And this is just one of them. Is there anything more you want to you wanna add to? Or no, 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 I'm ready to go on to the next one. Okay, well the next one is from my favourite of mine, Flagon of Trails. Uh, I think that's how you say where he's from. He was writing in the 2nd century AD. I'm going to say this is my favourite story because it is so odd. Because the more you read it, the no, more No odd. pressure on me reading it. Yeah, absolutely no pressure. <laughs> Emma's going to read this one, so you can... Did you draw at school or no. anything? No. Oh, <laughs> but, but I am I am an educator, and I do stand up in front of a lot of people and talk, so I, sorry. hopefully... So it's not going to be particularly dramatic, but it should have... Well, the story, the story will do the work. We'll, we'll see how it goes. It's a well-written story. So the story, we sh- I should really point out, first of all, it's by Flagon of Trials. It's 2nd century AD. We're not exactly sure when it existed. However... It could reference to the Alexandrian period. I've read reports that that's the case. It involves a girl. I won't give too much story. I'm not too much. No spoiler. Spoiler. (laughs) However, the beginning of the story is missing, so we're going to come straight in. But I will say that the woman involved, the girl involved, was married. That becomes important as you go through. So just remember, the girl involved in this was married. Recently married. Yeah, recently married. There we go. Take it away, Emma. The nurse went to the door of the guest room, and in the light of the burning lamp she saw the girl who died and had been entombed many months before sitting beside Macrates. Because of the extraordinary nature of the sight, she did not wait there any longer, but ran to the girl's mother, screaming, Corito! Demostratos! She said they should get up and come with her to their daughter, who was alive and by some divine will was with the guest in the guest room. When Corito heard this astonishing report, the immensity of the message and the nurse's excitement made her frightened and faint. But after a short time, the memory of her daughter came to her and she began to weep. In the end, she accused the old woman of being mad and told her to leave her presence immediately. But the nurse replied boldly and reproachfully that she was rational and of sound mind, unlike her mistress, who was reluctant to see her own daughter. With some hesitation, Carito went to the door of the guest room, partly coerced by the nurse and partly wanting to know what really had happened. Since considerable time, about two hours had passed since the nurse's original message, it was somewhat late when Caruso went to the door and the occupants were already asleep. She peered in, and though she recognised her daughter's clothes and features, but inasmuch as she could not determine the truth of the matter, she decided to do nothing further that night. She planned to get up in the morning and confront the girl, or if she should be too late for that, she intended to question McCratis thoroughly about everything. He would not, she thought, lie if asked about so important a matter, and so she said nothing and left. At dawn, however, it turned out that by divine will or chance, the girl had left unnoticed. When Carito came to the room, she was upset with the young man because of the girl's departure. She asked him to relate everything to her from the beginning, telling the truth and concealing nothing. The youth was anxious and confused at first, but hesitantly revealed the girl's name was Valinian. He told how her visits began, how great her desire for him was, and that she said she came to him without her parents' knowledge. 
Wishing to make the matter credible, he opened his coffer and took out the items the girl had left behind, the golden ring he had obtained for her and the breastband she'd left the night before. When Carito saw this evidence, she uttered a cry, tore her clothes, cast her headdress from her head and fell to the ground, throwing herself upon the tokens and beginning her grief anew. As the guest observed what was happening, how all were grieving and wailing as if they were about to lay the girl into her grave, he became upset and called upon them to stop, promising to show them the girl if she came again. Carito accepted this and bade him carefully to keep his promise to her. Night came on and now it was the hour where Felinian was accustomed to come to him. The household kept watch wanting to know of her arrival. She entered at the usual time and sat down on the bed. Macrates pretended nothing was wrong since he wished to investigate the whole incredible matter to find out if the girl he was consorting with, who took care to come to him at the same hour, was actually dead. As she ate and drank with him, he simply could not believe what the others had told him, and he supposed that some grave robbers had dug into the tomb and sold the clothes and gold to her father. But in his wish to learn exactly what the case was, he secretly sent his slaves to summon Demostratos and Carito. They came quickly. When they first saw her, they were speechless and panic-stricken by the amazing sight, but after that they cried aloud and embraced their daughter. Then Philinian said to them, Mother and father, how unfairly you have grudged my being with the guests for three days in my father's house, since I have caused no one any pain. For this reason, on account of your meddling, you shall grieve all over again, and I shall return to the place appointed for me, for it was not without divine will that I came here. Immediately upon speaking these words she was dead, and her body lay stretched visibly on the bed. Her father and mother threw themselves upon her, and there was much confusion and wailing in the house because of the calamity. The misfortune was unbearable, and the sight incredible. The event was quickly heard through the city, and it was reported to me. Accordingly, during the night I kept in check the crowds that gathered the house, since, with news like this going from mouth to mouth, I wanted to make sure there would be no trouble. By early dawn, the town assembly was full. After the particulars had been explained, it was decided that we should first go to the tomb and see whether the body lay on its bier or whether we would find the place empty. A half year had not yet passed since the death of the girl. When we opened the chamber into which all deceased members of the family were placed, we saw bodies lying on biers, or bones in the case of those who had died long ago. But on the bier onto which Valinian had been placed, we found only the iron ring that belonged to the guest and the gilded wine cup, objects that she had obtained from Mercates on the first day. Astonished and frightened, we proceeded immediately to Demostratos's house to see if the corpse was truly to be seen in the guest room. After we saw the dead girl lying there on the ground, we gathered at the place of assembly, since the events were serious and incredible. There was considerable confusion in the assembly, and almost no one was able to form a judgment on the events. The first to stand up was Hylos, who is considered to be not only the best seer among us, but also a fine augur. In general, he has shown remarkable perception in his craft. He said we should burn the girl outside the boundaries of the city, since nothing would be gained by burying her in the ground within its boundaries, and perform an apotropic sacrifice to Hermes of the underworld and Eumenides. Boy meets girl. Girl is a dead thing. <laughs> Boy then kills himself. It's the classic Hollywood love story. It's a tale of as old as time. Yeah, a tale as old as time itself. It's, uh, I really like this story. I really like this story because it's got a lot to it. Uh, and that's probably one of the faults as well, because it does seem un- quite unclear as to what's exactly happened. Yeah. It's not really sure. I, I'm not really sure. Well, I say I'm not really sure. You, the, the text does tell us. But in what capacity the girl was? Was she a ghost? Because in some instances you can say she's a ghost. It, you could say she a vampire. I don't know. It's It's difficult because she has... I suppose, reanimated and come back. Or you could even say, is she a zombie? She could be any one of those three things. That What we've got here is 
someone who wants to move on but can't. And there's that line that says, I'm, I'm here by divine will. Yeah. And she's really angry with her parents for daring to walk in on them. It, the one, the one of the more, more interesting arguments I read about this st- suggested that she had died. The, the, a lot of this myth is about liminality, so it's about being stuck in a in a point between two places. So us us in modern times would call that limbo. For anyone who's listening, who oh, isn't okay, some yeah. kind of cleric or ancient scholar, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And so you got the liminality aspect to it, and that plays across a number of of spectrums. The first one, you've obviously got the girl as being. Alive but dead, but alive but dead. Mm-hmm. Also, we find out that she is she was married, but there's something that didn't happen. And the, again, the argument I read suggested that the marriage wasn't consummated, and that what needed to happen is that. And it, this does take us into the context of ancient Greece and women in ancient Greece. As you moved, you you as a woman inherently you were passed from being in ownership of by what would normally be your father or family, to your husband. If you can just... I just want to point out that my face isn't happy about that. I understand that's how it <laughs> yeah. works back then. But... Um, yeah, I did... Yeah, this yeah. is... Um... Women being passed as, as chattel is, is not, a, not a... I'm kind of glad they got haunted, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, sorry, yeah. go on. <laughs> so she was, she was moving from one place to another in the sense of her community where she was moving from being a daughter to being a wife. And the fact that the marriage wasn't consummated stopped that. So she died and she was neither. The, the argument then concludes uh, that it, 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 this was someone who was intending to have relations with the visitor. <laughs> and that would somehow... I don't know how that would pan out for him. Because you, can, uh, I, I, you can't imagine. But I, presumably after the event she'd just be a dead body. And then, well... I think it, it, it seems to infer that they did have relations. You think? Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, why would he kill himself afterwards? Otherwise, and if he wasn't already, I, I, well, what... you, I imagine you'd be if that sort of thing happened to you. I just realised no. that I've implied that some, some this woman's sexual prowess was so amazing that people would have to kill themselves afterwards because it was so so awesome once she, after she disappeared. Or he or he or point. he was suitably disturbed after yeah, yeah, effectively there's... being courted by what effectively was a, a zombie stroke vampire, vampire stroke ghost. Yeah. I didn't think on when I read this originally and having reread it again, I don't think it felt very vampiric to me. I think it lacked a lot of detail with regards to vampire there wasn't really it was talked about her eating but it didn't really talk anything about her feeding on the mm. guy the guest and so i felt far more that it would it would fall under a horror trope that's that's quite common and seems to be a real one that's coming around more now it was it was quite common a while ago and now it seems to be having a bit of a resurgence and that's the the dead child is a vampire or dead child is a specter or parents lose child and then child comes back due to some sort of nefarious thing um the dead child is a vampire reminded me again i said about lost boys before which i don't actually count as a horror film but it is a film about vampires so it is applicable in this situation there's a there's a young child laddie in lost boys who is a a child vampire i think there was there's a film about a child vampire that i've just suddenly remembered but it's a kid's film so we won't go into that um, but it's an undead child trope, and what another one of the more famous ones is is Stephen King with with Pet Cemetery. Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot as well. It's terrifying. That terrified me as a kid when I saw that <laughs> with a kid floating, tapping on the window. Tapping on the window. Yeah. So the, the dead child, but particularly the fact that the parents are in there as well. A lot of films recently have been about parents who've lost children, and then they're going to get them, or they come back, 
and we don't know why they've come back. Are they a zombie? Are they evil? Have they been possessed? It felt very much more a ghost story to me or a, a demonic possession story to me than a vampiric one. But I can see where you got the vampiric idea from, but I, I, it, it was far more reminiscent of, of that, those other genres as opposed to vampire. I, don't, I can't disagree with any of your points. It doesn't seem uh, in any way a vampire. I don't know if you can classify it really as a vampire. I put it in there because I thought it's it's just a very interesting one and it's got similar, it resonates mm. in, in a similar way. They, the only thing that I can think of that really that gives it any kind of anchoring is that she visits him at night. Yeah. And at the, she says, night came and it was now the hour when Felinium was accustomed to come to him. She's, she's appearing at night at the same time each night. That's a very good that's the werewolves and the vampires. I'd say sort of covered, but at least we've addressed them. We were going to make this. We we're going to do one big podcast, but we've realised that we've still got a lot to talk about. So we're going to split this into a two-parter. In the second part, we will be looking at haunted houses, ghosts, sort of zombies. And I'm going to... In Livy, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's very, very odd. It includes what I consider possible UFO sightings, aliens... All sorts of stuff that we're going to look at that. And also going to look in the second part at the most chilling story that I, I think is the most chilling story in antiquity. It's in the Odyssey. That's all I'll say. I alluded to it in my previous podcast. I want to say thanks very much to Emma. Emma will be on the second podcast because we're just going to, we're just going to go through all of this. Don't worry. I've got a lot to say. So yeah, there's <laughs> going to be... We're going to talk a lot. And we hope you enjoy it. Thanks very much for listening. Stick around for part two, which will be out soon. Yeah, and thanks for having me. Oh, that was very nice. Thank, thanks for being on. <laughs> infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me!